you want to work on your abs, you want to work on your core, maybe the best thing you can do is actually something about your breathing instead of things like crunches or whatever else you do for your abs. We're going to find out more about that on today's episode of The Movement Movement, the podcast for people who like to know the truth about what it takes to have a happy, healthy, strong body. We usually say starting with your feet because they're your foundation, but breathing is kind of your foundation as well. So this will be really interesting. Uh, this is also the podcast where we you know get rid of the propaganda, the mythology, sometimes the outright lies you've been told about what it takes to run, walk, hike, play play, do yoga, CrossFit, whatever it is you like to do, and to do that enjoyably, efficiently, effectively. Did I say enjoyably? Trick question. I know I did, because I always say that. Because look, if you're not having fun, you're not going to keep it up. So find a way to have have fun with what you're doing. Um, I'm Stephen Sashin from ZeroShoes.com, your host of the Movement Movement Podcast. And we call it that because we, and that includes you and everyone else who's listening to this and more about that in a second, uh, we're creating a movement about natural movement, about letting your body do what bodies are made to do. And the movement part where you participate, it's really easy. You can go to www.jointhemovementmovement.com. You don't need to join anything. It's just the URL that I got. There's no cost for anything. There's no secret handshake. It's just that's where you can find all the previous episodes, all the ways you can interact with us on different uh, social channels and how to find our podcast and all the places that you find podcasts. So it's really simple, basically like, share, Thumbs up, um, hit the bell icon on YouTube, whatever's relevant. You know the gist. If you want to be part of the tribe, just subscribe. So let's jump in. Aaron McGuire, welcome to the Movement Movement Podcast. Tell people who the hell you are and what you're doing here. Well, am I supposed to know that? <laughs> oh, no, you can make something up for all I care. Okay. <laughs> so, yeah, I'm Aaron McGuire. I am a physical therapist for now more than 25 years. And my journey kind of took a not a typical physical therapy twist right off the bat. And I kind of was introduced to a different approach that had to do with developmental kinesiology. So talking about kind of what we're supposed to do naturally, it is the whole approach is based on how we develop and how that teaches us how we're supposed to move. So I'm here because my career path led me. I had a private practice in Los Angeles for uh, many years that I just closed and I'm now in actually Colorado. Um, Yes. Longmont, very close to you. Um, Literally up the street. Right, um, congratulations right. on escaping. But I will say for those of us who've been in Colorado for a long time, I'm about 30 years uh, getting all those Californians, you know, just makes us a little twitchy. I know. I know. I understand. <laughs> um, but so uh, along my career path, one of the things is, you know, when you mentioned both the feet and our breathing and our diaphragm are our foundation is the when we develop uh, the first thing that we have to have is core stability which comes wait, from our diet. Wait, wait, I've got to pause because for people yes. who are watching, you just put air quotes around core stability. Yeah. I, I mean, I feel like it's a term that is just used so much and it can mean so many different things to so many different people. So well, my hunch is we'll be diving into that a little more with a little more detail in just moments. I, I hope so. <laughs> hey, it's all up to you. I'm just, I'm going for the ride. <laughs> yeah. So, you know, the, the first thing we have to do when we develop is babies is our diaphragm starts out as teaching us how, like as, as a breathing muscle, but by six weeks, we start to have a postural function of our diaphragm, which is what gives us, I won't use the quotes, but gives us trunk or core stability. And it isn't until that point that we can start to lift our arms and legs off of the surface. And so it teaches us about how important that stability is in order for us to have good, fixed, solid base to move off of. And so through my practice and studying this approach that I that I studied that has to do with this developmental kinesiology, I have really become obsessed with the diaphragm and breathing and teaching people the proper way to activate it for both breathing and their core function, because it has such huge implications for our whole movement system throughout the chain. So I can't think of anywhere I would want to go next other than, oh gosh, say more like, you know, can we, is there something we can get our, wrap our hands and diaphragm around something to experience based on this? And then we'll dive in a little more. Uh, I'm sorry, experience based on it? Yeah. Well, here's the simple thing since it's the movement movement. Do you want to start with something movement-y that you can, so people can get a feel for what you just described? Yes. So with respect to how the diaphragm functions, is that- Again, well, uh, we can talk about that, but also like literally a something that people can do, whether they're watching this, listening to this, Ah. driving in an airplane, in a blimp, hot air balloon. 
Yeah. So, you know, one of the things is kind of a, I think still out there a little bit is people uh, kind of consider diaphragm belly breathing, right? And what happens is your diaphragm, when it, it sits as a dome all the way around your trunk, and when it comes down, if you imagine a water balloon as your abdominal wall, as it comes down and compresses all of those contents in your trunk, well, like it's going to move those organs down. So now your entire trunk wall is going to expand in 360 degrees all the way around. So one of the things you can do to just check how you're breathing is to just place your hands around your, your trunk, right? And you just make sure that your thumbs wrap around that posterior part in the back. And when you inhale, you want to feel that your thumbs and your fingers are moving away from each other in all directions. And quite commonly, what we'll see is the chest lifting mm. or just movement in the front. And so that's kind of a quick, easy way to start to, you know, learn how to or just assess, like, can you even breathe into your back? That back half is generally the hardest part for people to get. Should people be feeling the back half or the whole thing moving simultaneously? Or is there a sort of rhythm like, you know, sort of front goes around to the sides, goes around to the back or, or some other it, pattern? Yeah, it should be pretty simultaneous and symmetrical, right? So it's much easier, like our abdominal wall tends to be kind of the softest part of us, right? <laughs> Hence the desire so, uh... for crunches, et cetera, et cetera. Right. So um, it's usually easier for us to go that that direction, but it should be pretty symmetrical um, with just a little bit more expansion around the front half. Um, but timing should be right, right at the same time when we have it right. So I'm testing. Yeah. <laughs> Interesting. I, I don't know how much has changed from like the first breath I took to now, but on the first breath I took, there was less movement in my back. Now, granted, the other day I, I did some weird twisty thing and I'm, and I'm sitting here with a bunch of tiger bomb on my lower back on the right side because I don't right. know what the hell I did. But right. um, so I know I'm being a little protective. But for people who find that they're not getting that expansion, especially to the sides and back, and I don't yeah. know which might be more important, what's next? How does one move from there? Yeah. So, you know, it's, it's a lot of times you almost have to take a couple steps because for most people, the chest is dominant. Uh, right. And so it's like this, this, when they inhale, they're using these muscles that we call the accessory muscles, which are basically cheater muscles and the diaphragm isn't working as well. And so now when you inhale, it's literally coming up and that's what can get you all kinds of, you know, not just inefficient breathing, but also you start to get overuse of muscles in your neck and chest and that can cause issues. Right. So sometimes people just have to work on actually do like to be able to get their stomach to move forward without their chest. Um, so sometimes that can be the first step. But then they need to start to just work on being able to feel that 360 expansion. So one is you can sit against the back of a chair, try to feel, um, you know, that as you breathe, you're getting both that kind of pressure into the back of the chair as well as um, your hands. I also actually, because this is such an issue and such a problem, created the Core 360 belt which actually also cues you, right? So it's got these little points that go around the back to give you some input into your central nervous system to go like, hey, this is where we need to expand. But you can work on it by putting your hands and your thumbs there. That's how I used to train people in the clinic prior to having the belt. And the belt is just a little bit of a extra cueing so that you can work on it when you don't have your hands available. Well, what I love about the Core 360 belt is it is basically in one way, and um, this may be inadvertent, designed to correct a misunderstanding people have about weightlifting belts. Where yes, people, that too. I mean, most people think that the whole idea is that you're supposed to tighten the belt and it's providing that that's providing stability instead of thinking that it's a cue. So you right. band into the belt and that's exactly. creating stability. Do you want to say any more about that than what I just did and kind of pulled the rug out from underneath you? Yeah, no, I mean, absolutely. So we talked about in the beginning how breathing and core stability are, are one and the same because the diaphragm has to work for both. 
So if you can't use the diaphragm to breathe, which when it comes down, it creates that pressure inside that we talked about squashing that balloon. Well, core stability is really about that pressure inside your abdomen. It's called intra-abdominal pressure. And so when you are able to use the diaphragm for that postural strength, then you are creating that stability by using all the muscles in the right coordination, right? So if you have a stiff weight belt on and you're just butting up against it, you're actually not using your abdominal wall quite the way you're supposed to. Whereas this belt, because it's elastic, it's teaching you how to actively create that, right? And that's what we need is we need that expansion of the abdominal wall and then the muscles hold as you lift or as you're doing whatever activity you're doing for that stability, for that stabilization function. What I also find really interesting about what you said with either using something like the core 360 belt or just putting your hands down and feeling it or leaning against a chair and trying to feel yourself pushing against the chair when you're breathing. Yeah. The number one, the, the obviously the uh, common factor in all that is awareness is right. just bringing your attention to something that you know you might not have noticed or can't notice or some version of that. How much do you find that it really is just the kind of repeated bounce of awareness that make the change versus any additional something you need to do? So, you know, our movement is driven by our brains, right? So there, there are patterns of movement that we have so that we don't have to think about, oh, contract this muscle, contract this muscle. It's all in our nervous system. And it's a pattern, right? right? And when you have a good pattern, you don't have to think about it as much. But it's just like any habit, bad habit that we form. So for many reasons, we we start out like when you when you develop, most babies develop the correct way, and we have the right movement, and that teaches us. Then we have these patterns that support our joints, that are efficient, that are balanced. But then through our life, things happen that kind of interrupt that. And so now the habit becomes a poor habit, mm. right? And so now that's the wiring in our brain. So that just if I say, no, use your diaphragm or no, expand out, don't pull in. If your wiring in your brain only knows how to coordinate it that other way, you need some cueing and something to help you recognize how to do it properly, right? And so over time, as you repeat that, then it starts to become more your normal. It's just like learning any new skill. We need repetition of the right coordination over time. And then it starts to become a little bit more normal. The weird example that I give about this, um, I have a fondness for noticing when I'm doing something habitually and then trying uh -huh. to mix it up. So my last experiment, this has been going on for a few months, is I noticed that I always put on my pants left leg first. So I spent a oh. couple months only trying, trying to only go right leg first and right. I forget. And then it's like, um, and then it got to the point where if I used my left leg, I felt like I was cheating on my right oh, leg, which was right. kind of funny. And now I'm doing, it's like, I'm just aware of which one I start with, but I can do both equally as well. Right. And I'm just interested to find out, you know, what happens like when I'm totally not thinking about it, what's the difference between when I use my left leg or my right leg. And it's fascinating watching how, these patterns do shift over time and it takes right. time. It takes a little bit right. of time. Was it physically like awkward to coordinate it at first to, you know, not just. It was more, it was less that it was difficult or awkward than it was that the initial pattern, the left leg first was so instantaneous right. that it had to really work to think, whoa, whoa hold on. And then switch. And right. then they're it's just so yeah, they're equal. I'm facile with either but it just feels weird when I'm doing my left and I feel like, oh, wait, am I just relying on a habit again? So I'm still kind of figuring out where that goes. When I cross my arms, this is one of the first ones I did. Now I can, uh, I kind of do both and I switch all the time. And I right. literally, I'm not even sure which one was the original one that I did. Um, I can't tell anymore. And yeah. I don't feel the same kind of issue about switching my arms. You know, if I'm starting with my right arm above my left, and then I switch the other way around because I'd switch often, but with pants, you don't switch your pants very often during a day. No. <laughs> yeah. That's a, that's an interesting one for sure. Yeah. So I've, I have a different experience about that and I'm sure there's, Oh, and eating, there's a whole thing. I don't know if you've noticed this and maybe I'm just crazy about it, but um, there've been more British shows, more British TV shows and movies showing up. And so the way British people use their knife and fork is different than the way Americans typically do. Yes. So I've been playing with that too. And yeah. I think uh, in many ways, the Brits are, um, and this is a technical term, completely wrong. Uh, <laughs> so 
the idea that you use the back of your fork as the thing to hold something when it's pointed down, right? Is, you know, that just doesn't make any sense to me. Right. I think it's not just habit. That's just wrong. It, yeah. For, I mean, it's not a cultural thing. It's not a, it, it's just <laughs> undeniably wrong. Um, right. And, and I'll, I'll, I'll die with that one. I'm, I'm, right. I'm sticking to it. Now that said, I still play with it, but more what I'm doing is I'm playing around with not being attached to any particular way, which right. high end is holding the fork. Is it up or down and vice right. versa? Just to find a thing. Right. And those are just such great examples of how like our movement is very automatic. You know, there's so much that we do that we don't have to think about. And so when you develop something that's a bad habit, like putting that fork down, it, you know, it does require some conscious kind of effort to, to change it, but also even for performance enhancement, right? Yeah. Like, so, so not just changing initially, but the more you improve these things, then the more efficient you are with running, with stabilization, with breathing, you know, you just get better well, say, say more about that. Actually, there's two things I want to ask you about, and I have to do them both or I'll forget at least one. Um, okay. so one is just say more about when people start making this change and breathing better, getting this 360 degree effect, what are the effects that they might see? What are the things they might see? The second one, I'm going to do this one so I don't forget, is have you noticed any pattern about why it is that some people are just chest breathing, they're not using their diaphragm, something, whether it's, you know, something traumatic or something just habitual for some other reason or anything that you may have noticed about the cause? Yeah. So there's a lot of, there's a lot of things. So some people just have a, an abnormal development and, and it can just be that they were actually accelerated too quickly. They skipped crawling. Right. So it it can be things like that where we don't go through the automatic processes that like start to shape our bones and, and bring our joints into the neutral position that allow us to use the muscles properly. Um, that's one key thing. Another thing is if you were a child and had a really bad respiratory infection after a while of having to breathe differently and and compensate, it starts to become the normal and that can persist. So Um, you see that with kids who are asthmatic, for example? Yes. Because, you know, once we start developing a, a compensatory pattern or a pattern to help us breathe, if we can't do the normal thing, right. If we can't breathe in the normal way, it starts to now become that normal in our pattern in our brain. And so we don't get an email saying, hey, just wanted to let you know, you got to now work on your pattern because right. it just becomes the normal and you you just keep doing it. Injuries, like you were talking about your back, right? That can elicit a protective response. Yeah. So now you're going to start breathing with the wrong muscles. And probably one of the biggest ones is societal influence. You know, people are taught to, hold your stomach in, right? That actually blocks the diaphragm. And so now you're forced to use the compensatory muscles. So uh, there's... Sorry, I got to interrupt this one. Um, no, uh, no. I don't have to, but I did. Um, <laughs> the, um, Please do. <laughs> the thing that I think about with chest breathing is what it also does to your blood chemistry. And I think about this because I have, I have a video of my dad from the last 12 hours of his life. And he's yeah. super fast, only like really high in his chest. And I I know that that basically just does a whole wacky thing with CO2 in his blood. And I I turned to the nurse and said, he keeps doing that. He's got 12 hours to live. And she goes, yep. And 12 hours later, that's when he died. And um, he was unconscious during the whole thing, which is fascinating. He's unconscious and, you know, breathing really high, really fast. Right. Right. No, for sure. Um, It changes everything. And if you're breathing with your chest, there's no way that you can be completely utilizing your full lung capacity. Right. So like if you just imagine that on a daily basis, if you have an increased respiratory rate and it's more shallow, just the impacts on your overall well-being and health. Right. There's there's definitely also those those pieces to it. You know, when you talked about what you might start to feel as you start to breathe and there's two pieces, right? There's the 360 breathing. And then there's also the 360 degree kind of core activation, which they look the same. So there's the inhalation, which is just the 360 breathing. That's more of that natural breathing. And then there's the core activation that happens prior to doing a movement or, you know, resisting a load. Right. So, you know, some of the things that people start to notice right away are um, that they have less strain in their neck. Mm. So wait, um, I got to own it back up. So yeah. what we're talking about is 
once we start to feel this 360 degree thing from breathing yeah. the idea of engaging those muscles, 360 degrees worth, and uh-huh. we're not about pulling it in. But again, if we think about using the core 360 belt or even a weightlifting belt or anything, it's yes. like that you're doing this. Is it really, how much of it is an expansion versus something more isometric? So that's a great question. Um, so the initial phase of this is that the diaphragm kind of, it's kind of the leader of this whole coordination, right? And so when, whether you're breathing or whether you're activating your core, the muscle does the same thing. It's just that one is more for kind of strength function and one is more for respiration. Okay. And so, or breathing. And so now when it comes down and it starts to move those organs towards your pelvic floor, like, right, they're pushing all of it down. The initial piece of this needs to be the eccentric or a lengthening of the muscles of the abdominal wall. Then as the load is added, now we get an isometric contraction. Got it. So it's kind of an initial expansion and then hold. And, And that's what kind of connects our upper and lower bodies. So that now when we're talking about that foot being that foundation, that support, we're getting that movement and that power integrated and and transferred up through our whole chain, right? Like that's the connection is that getting that expansion piece of it. It's funny. I just had a flashback as you said that to thinking about when I started figuring this out and playing with this and deadlifting when I was doing a lot of heavy deadlifting, which annoyingly I don't do any longer because I've got a compromised spine. And I say annoyingly because I like lifting really heavy things, especially because I'm a small guy. So there's something really fun about going to a gym where there's some guy who weighs, you know, 300 pounds and he's got like 400 pounds on a bar and he starts to unload it. I go, no, no, you can just leave it like that. Um, (laughs) I'm good. Yeah. (laughs) I can can work in on that. Um, But it was very interesting to feel how other parts of my body, I mean, I'm thinking about my arms, my shoulders really did, did less work. I wasn't as tight in other parts of my body when my core was really engaged that way. Right. I mean, one of the things that when I first created the belt, I I kind of just was doing it to replace people's hands. Right. So that, you know, because we would try to progress them. And what would happen was they'd be like, well, I can't feel if I'm doing it right because I can't use my hands. So I thought, okay, you know, but as I started to watch what happened to people's movement and how, and it makes sense, but I just wasn't thinking it would this simple product would do such a big thing, probably like how you felt about yours, right? Like both oh, of no, our no, products. I, no, I knew this was a big thing because of my own experience. I, I was surprised. That, well, was right. Fun, but then, you know, yeah. Yes. Yeah, so until you, yeah. So until you feel it, right? Yeah, like, yeah, yeah. But I would see how the difference of when people would get that expansion, whether it was breathing or the core activation, how their movement pattern would completely change in an instant. So it wasn't that they got stronger. It was just that because they got the correct activation, it helped to, you know, improve the quality of motion throughout the whole chain. And there's just instantaneously and people would be like, oh, I don't have any pain. Oh, it's easier you know, and so I started to see these changes and it was just so incredibly powerful that, you know, it's what made me fall in love with it. I must say, I'm disappointed that you didn't design it to just be hands on a belt. I think that would have been just buy some mannequin hands, put them. Right. Put them I think that I'll, I'll work on one for you. <laughs> I, I would wear that. I would be that guy. Um, th- that made me think of two things that are related. One, um, so have there have you worked with any athletes who use the core three sixty belt while they are competing? Yes, I've worked with some that wear it while they're competing runners. Yeah, because that's probably the easiest uh, application. It gets a little tougher. There's a, a lot of the major league baseball teams have used the belt for their training part of it, um, pitchers, and then also just during the gym. There's um, like some hockey players use it. They they primarily use it during uh, training. And then what you do is you kind of have a sensory awareness of what that feeling is. And so then you try to, you know, implement it in practice. And then, you know, when you're competing that way, you, you just are going with the motion right. you're not you're not thinking at that point, but um, I think it might get in the way of like those kinds of sports, but golf, I haven't had a professional golfer do it, but some other people who golf regularly use it and running, it's really nice to, um, to have on to, to keep that performance aspect of it going so that you don't go into your compensatory pattern. 
Yeah, I was imagining, um, speaking as a sprinter, using the belt, but then realizing during 100 meters, I breathe four times. So there's yeah, not, right, right. <laughs> not a whole lot of opportunity. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. It'd still, it'd still be fun to try, though. We should, we, should go, we should go out and just like play around with it. Yeah, yeah. And try, yeah. Since you're my neighbor, um, that's right. You can definitely make that happen. The uh, I want to ask a question, and if you have an answer, you're going to have to define the term that I will use in the question. Ready? Okay. How does what we're talking about relate to or not relate to the Valsalva maneuver? Yes. So the Valsalva maneuver is not only creating pressure in. Well, wait. The... You have to. You, you got to define. Oh. It, I use that, and of course, anything with the word maneuver in it. I mean, how you know how big? Right, right, right. Well, the Valsalva maneuver is something that when you're maxing out and lifting like a max load, that's usually what they teach people to do, right? So yeah. it's it's the kind of like an isometric locking down where you close your glottis and you just have this big isometric contraction to stabilize to lift the max load. Is that a good? Yeah, that'll work. Okay. It works for me. Okay. So um, I don't really do a lot of maxing. No, but the the thing that you made, the the point that you made, that's the interesting point is it's not just a core thing. It's really starting from like the throat down. Yes. And because what happens is you're actually, you're, you're, you're creating pressure in the thoracic area. Yep as well as the intra-abdominal area. And, and so that can cause big issues when you let go in terms of fluctuations in blood pressure. pressure. Yeah. Right. Think Elvis for all of us older people. Oh my God. That's hysterical. <laughs> I, I, I never uh, put those two things together until right now. Right. And that's going to ruin my lunch. Um, uh, so Sorry so for anyone who didn't get it, uh, uh, Elvis died on the toilet ostensibly after uh, straining very hard, which is similar to the Valsalva maneuver. And, uh, right. and then, and then um, blood pressure dropped when he stopped, passed out, fell over, boing. Right. Yeah. And that was the end. Yeah. Um, well, but, so, I mean, El- uh, he's still alive, but that's a, uh, anyway, that's a whole lot. Oh, that's right. <laughs> he's like 102 now or something, but um <laughs> Yeah. So here's the thing is that most of the stuff that I, that I work on with the core 360 and trying to train and, and help people understand the importance of breathing properly and integrating this into our movement and how much it impacts our movement. Most of it is not talking about a max weight lifting. There are definitely, there are pe- many people um, that I've seen online that use the belt as now their weight belt for their lifting. Right. But what happens is with the diaphragm in all of our functions is we need to be able to use it for both breathing and core stabilization at the same time. We're doing the same things like whether we're walking, we don't need as much for the core, but we need more for breathing or running. We need a little bit more for breathing. But if we're like carrying something heavy, we need a little bit more of that for the stabilization function. But we still then need to be able to breathe diaphragmatically and get the ribs and the abdominal wall to open up. So that's where it's different from just a big kind of isometric lockdown holding your breath. Like we need to be able to have core stabilization and still breathe, right. even if it's not to the same degree, right? If we're carrying something heavy. In, in sprinting, um, and this is not something that I really work on or think about, but they think about the Valsalva maneuver during just out of the block start, those first few steps. Mm-hmm. And yeah. it really is akin to like heavy squats in, in many ways. Right. Uh, yeah. And, uh, and there, there's some debates about the effectiveness of it, but it's it's become one of those things. Um, anytime right. there's... Anytime in uh, in highly competitive athletics where someone has something where another person claims that made them better, then everyone starts doing it no matter what, because they're terrified that if, in fact, it is something that is performance enhancing mm-hmm. and they're not doing it, you know, so that's a... That they're going to miss out on that benefit. Yeah. Yeah. It's a bit of a vicious cycle. Um, I've, I've watched people do all these ridiculous things that have clearly no value because some crazy famous person did that thing and uh, and they think it's going to impact them as well. And right. and it was never really the delimiting factor. Right. Yeah. And what like what it does for them in their body based on their kinesthetic awareness, based on their... Yeah. They're just kind of overall movement system could be totally different than when you try to implement it, depending on where you are. Right. Yeah. It's one of those things where coaches, someone will, a coach will hear about it. He'll start to teach it. And then there's usually bad cues. So people 
misinterpret whatever it is and then they start yeah. sharing that and so on and so on and eventually you know you have all these i remember one of my best friends we became best friends we were working with the same sprinting coach and i noticed he wasn't doing some of the warm-up drills that i also wasn't doing because i knew they were ridiculous and bullshit and i right. said, said to him why aren't you doing these drills he goes, and he's british he goes oh they're bollocks now you're my friend <laughs> so um uh, but you know this coach was a well-known coach was just getting all these people to do some drills that clearly had no benefit whatsoever right what yeah i mean that's that's kind of one of my you know one of the things i love about the belt and why i'm kind of shifting towards trying to get more information out about it is because there is so much in, in my opinion, and based on this, um, you know, I study an approach called dynamic neuromuscular stabilization that's based out of Czech Republic. And, and there's just so much misunderstanding about what movement is mm. and, and that it's really driven by our central nervous system. And, you know, that, that we don't just move by training one joint or, you know, so it's, kind of a passion of mine to get a little bit of that out there. I wonder if uh, this makes your head explode. Uh, not what I'm about <laughs> to say um, specifically, but the thing I'm going to reference. So Boulder is a town. I, I joke about Boulder. I go, it's a town where you can't throw a tantrum without hitting a therapist. And um, it's, <laughs> and, and among the kinds of therapists, I will include people who do Pilates because there's a Pilates studio every five feet. Um, is there? It seems that way sometimes. Yeah. And, yeah. Uh, and of course, in Pilates, which I played with, oh, my God, this is an embarrassing number to say 40 years ago. You know, Joe Pilates was one of these guys, big barrel chested guy. And when in Pilates, they go breathe and then hold, you know, pull your stomach in as you're inhaling. And yes. I say, what? So I'm imagining you get people who've been doing Pilates who show up with you. And yes. it's, it's almost a religious thing when you suggest that maybe that's a little upside down. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I've had people cry before, you know, when I start to talk about who were, I'm not kidding. <laughs> well, wait, um, cry because. Well, so not because so much their Pilates instructor told them, but because they really felt like aesthetically um, and just, it was such a powerful thing. And and yeah, when I get those people who are, are have been taught to really draw in, it is a tough sell, but one of the greatest things about this approach is in what I was talking about, how when you just change the coordination, it changes how it feels Yeah, is that as soon as you get someone to feel inside themselves, the difference, and they just are like, Oh, that's so much different. It's easier. I don't have strain. Then you can get the buy-in. It's kind of one of the things that makes it a little tougher too, because, yeah. you know, just to hear about it and for me to tell you, yes, do it this way, you yeah. know, I'm sure you maybe experienced some of that with the the shoes as well, uh, like what you're supposed to run in these. It's all about the experience. I mean, yeah. this, our number one goal is just getting people to f get them on their feet and feel the difference because right. until then, there's just a lot of, you know, cognitive whatever going on. But the it, but in fact, what it really is, this may be interesting um, or maybe not, uh, because, <laughs> because people believe things about footwear because of what they've been told for 50 years. Right. The only thing we, the best thing we can do is give them an experience that undermines what they believe yes. because that puts them in a state of cognitive dissonance where they have to reconcile it one way or the other. And some people will go, wow, what I just experienced. And actually this reminds me of something from the past seems more, seems better than what I've been told. And right. some other people just latch on even more firmly to the thing they were told because it's part of their identity in some way. I mean, yes. I, mean I have an idea that many of the beliefs we hold that are not about anything we can physically test are held neurologically the same way we hold our very sense of self. Yeah. yeah. Which is why when you challenge something like that in someone, they act like you're trying to kill them, their children, their grandchildren, and all their future descendants. Right. <laughs> yeah. yeah. It, it's a weird, yeah. weird phenomenon. It is. And I mean, and it's been, you know, because my career has always been this kind of different path. And again, like, I think you've probably experienced a lot of the same. It's like, this has been, this is the part of it. That's the challenge. It's, yeah. you know, um, it is getting someone to like, just question it enough to go like, okay, yeah, I feel that. And usually, I mean, it is, there is something about breathing that's so innate. And that when you, it, and people do seem to get disturbed when they realize that they're doing it wrong, you know? So even beyond <laughs> the feeling it, like when you show them like, no, you should be able to breathe here. And they like, they can't do it. They can right. just keep doing this. It, it kind of disturbs them a little bit, which is a, which is a good, a good thing. 
Well, it's a it's a real that's a really interesting point. I'm just imagining someone who is discovering that they've just been breathing in one way and they can't do it another way. Um, again, I can really see how that could mess with their very sense of who they are and a whole yeah. bunch of things uh, about shame or about accomplishment or I mean, about I, I can't even imagine the list of things I, that come up for someone. Yeah. And identity like you were talking about, yeah. too, like I'm a, but I'm an athlete. Right. Or like I've always been able to do things without having to work at them that hard. You know, like I do things naturally well. So, yeah, that's a good point. Well, and to your point about uh, this whole idea of people learning to suck it in and that's the thing to do and, and, and the aesthetic of that. I wish I could remember where I saw this video, but um, in my YouTube feed where it's recommending things, there's a lot of stuff from people who like to debunk stuff about fitness. Not surprisingly. Uh And I wish I could remember whose video it was where Mark Wahlberg was with somebody else and was showing just how he was really lean and just had a six pack and the whole thing. And then for some reason, he said, and if I relax and his belly went out and he looked like normal people. Right, right. (laughs) Then like hold it in again to show to show off. And the guy went, see, this is the thing about Hollywood that when he's not working, it looks normal. He's at like, you know, 10% body fat. He doesn't have a, you don't see a six pack. You can tell that he's kind of lean, but he's not doing this thing that looks like when he was doing Calvin Klein ads. And everyone thinks you should look like him when he's doing the Calvin Klein ads. And it was, which is actually dysfunctional. Right. But it was just, it was such a, one of those moments where my hunch was that he didn't even, it was kind of like, maybe he was a little tired, maybe, but, or maybe he was doing it just kind of just not thinking because it's not the kind of thing you would want people to see given you are as a Mark Wahlberg, but it's one of those things that every other human needs to see. So they stop thinking that they should use this idealized version as a goal. Right. Yeah. And like, to me, actually, like, this is what we should look like. (laughs) <laughs> uh, wait describe what you're holding up for people who aren't watching well, this is it's a little still it's a round cylinder oh, right yeah. like if this is our trunk we should just look evenly rounded and distributed all the way throughout like there shouldn't be indentations and bones sticking out and like that's not good function and and now now it's not attractive well, you know, your cylinder may uh, have different uh, dimensions. Yes. Um, cylindrical, nonetheless. Um, it's something um, I get very cylindrical. Like I did it this weekend a couple of times when I ate a pound and a half of grapes because I just, <laughs> they were really no. good. Well, they were, I mean, I just couldn't stop eating them. And the next thing I knew I had, you know, and a pound and a half of grapes is a right. large volume. And it was pretty comical. Um, I had to loosen my belt after that. Well, as long as your cylinder is like distributed evenly all the way around and not bulging in one direction. Yeah, that was kind of a bulgy cylinder. Um, <laughs> uh, and actually, we, we did something else. It was, I think it was last weekend where for some reason it was like a bunch of parties and that was a bulging cylinder. But, um, <laughs> but, but, but given that, I mean, I knew that that was a temporary thing. It was not a big deal. It was kind of entertaining. Right. It's like, right, hey, right. look what just happened. So um, is there anyone, uh, any other groups of people that, and I'm thinking of physical therapists when I say this, yeah. to, to be candid, um, that you come up against where you're really sort of, you know, going uphill to get people to understand what you're talking about? Yeah, you know, at this point, I've seen a little bit of a shift in um, some of the cueing to pull the belly in, Mm. um, like over the years since I first created this in 2014. So it's been a little bit of time, but it's, I think it's still a little bit dominant in the kind of normal physical therapy. I did it again, the normal physical therapy world. It's okay. I use air quotes way too many times okay. the day. So right. your, your secret is safe with me. Okay. So, I mean, the, you know, the group that, and the, the DNS approach that I study, the dynamic neuromuscular stabilization approach, which is the one that is based on the developmental kinesiology, um, it is spreading. So it it is growing. And so people, and so that's available to physical therapists, uh, chiropractors, trainers, kind of both movement professionals and healthcare practitioners. And that is growing. And so those people who have taken those courses are now kind of more aware of how important it is to even include breathing in the rehab and training. Um, and that it should be more of this eccentric expansion, this 360 degree expansion. 
in um, the realm of the physical therapy and chiropractor world who hasn't been exposed to that, it's I think it's still a, a large percentage. And that's kind of who I, I'm trying to now get out and target a little bit more. Are you, what this. are you finding is the most or least effective ways of getting sort of spreading the word and getting people to have the experience? Yeah. You know, again, I feel like it's um, it is getting them to a course and trying to, to get them because again, when you feel it on yourself too, right. It's not just the the client feeling it, but when you can feel inside yourself, how like most of them, when they come to the courses are not doing it correctly either. And so when they can feel the difference, it's, it's pretty powerful. And then you get them again in so that they'll want to come back for more and to continue to kind of learn this approach. I wonder if you have an experience that I've seen um, Dr. Irene Davis, who, pardon me, yeah. I got the hiccups all of a sudden, Irene was yeah. at Harvard now, she's in Florida, and uh, she and, and uh, two other research docs, um, uh, Brian Heiderscheidt and, oh my gosh, I always forget the third guy's name. Uh, anyway, people who are, the science of running medicine, it's a course yeah. that's done for uh, physical therapists to get continuing education units, and Irene does the most linear, logical, lucid, brilliant demonstration and explanation of here's how modern footwear causes the problems they claim to cure. And just getting people out of that is 80% of your work. And then there's some gait right. retraining to, you know, activate some muscles they haven't been using, et cetera. And right. I said to Irene, after one of these, you know, you got 150 people in a room after your presentation where you're basically saying they should be wearing something like zero shoes. In fact, she often right. does say exactly that yeah. uh, to those people, they should come and tackle me and like steal all my product. But only half the room comes to check me out at all. And only half of those people, typically the younger physical therapists, really get engaged. And I said, yeah. why do you think that is? And we were playing with this idea. Like some of it is that these people, um, they believe they made rational choices to put the shoes they're wearing on their feet and recommend mm -hmm. them. And they've been telling their patients for years, here's what I recommend. And to go right. in and say, no, I'm mistaken is too much for them to do. Yeah. Uh, and uh, there's probably, you know, oh, and the simple thing is that you just typically can't convince people with data. That's just not how p human beliefs change with information, right. as we may have noticed in the last couple of years. So right. Um, <laughs> now, you know, but the thing with footwear, there's so much more connected to that. Um, and like those three things that I just described where you don't, might not have to run into all of those, but do you see similar kinds of response when you're dealing with a group of physical therapists where there's some of them who, for whatever reasons, like, I just can't go there. Yeah. Yeah. Um, for sure. And you know, my, my first nine years of my career before I was introduced to this other approach and, and the way I then kind of took my practice, um, I taught all the Australian research was saying, pull the belly in. Interesting. Well, that's and because so, they're in Australia and everything's upside down. Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> um, that's a good point. Um, <laughs> and uh, <laughs> so like, I was really good at it. Like, right. I, I mean, I did it from my, I, what, whatever I teach people is what I put into practice. And so nine years of that, where I had would write on people's home exercise program, pull your belly in towards your spine. So the first time that I went to Prague to start to listen to this um, man, Pavel Kolaj, who is the creator of DNS, and he started talking about this expanding out and pushing out. And I was like, this is nonsense. <laughs> like, this, uh, why did I come all this way? You know, and, and I was just like, because I didn't want to believe after nine years of teaching people something that I was wrong. Right. Yeah. And so, but then he kept talking and he was like, when you look at a baby, no one has taught this baby to do anything. No one has said for this baby to do anything. They are, their bellies are completely expanded. That's how they get the strength. And I was just like, oh, it just made so much sense that you couldn't deny it. Yeah. So I get the the impetus for when you're at these courses for these for PTs, chiros to be not want to believe that they've, you know, taught people incorrectly for so long. Um, but I I just said to my clients, I said, you know what, like you know, I had to be open to this and I can feel the difference on myself. And then the the difference in how people progressed was just completely. Yeah, that that's the significant difference. It's sort of like 
um, a, a half joke that I make, it's actually not a joke at all, but I try to do it in a somewhat comical way, is with the footwear brands who every X number of years, they have some magic new cushioning technology. Right. And they never say, hey, sorry about that crap we've been selling for the last five years. Right. <laughs> it's always, hey, it's magic and new. And the amazing right. part to me is it's like the boy who cried wolf. It's the shoe company that cried cushioning or art support. And in the original story, the villagers stopped coming when the boy cries wolf. But amazingly, for the last 50 years, every time the shoe company boys cry new cushioning, we just run to the store. Right. And, you know, it, it's incredible that people haven't noticed some obvious thing like, um, you know, running injuries uh, have not gotten any better in the last 50 years. And you would think that if they had something that was actually better, right. that would show demonstrable improvement. Right. We and, should be seeing incremental yeah. improvements and yeah. No, it doesn't happen. It's funny. Um, I, I have a video script that I'm working on about this. And I was actually talking to Irene just recently, and she said she met some guys who were runners in the late 60s, early 70s before padded, elevated motion control uh, running. Uh -huh. And she said, you know, what did you guys do about running injuries? And they said, what are you talking about? We we weren't getting injured. We had legs of steel. And, and people just don't have enough history, enough memory to be able to compare. So this yeah. is where it's, you know, tricky in my universe, but enough about right. me back to you for the win. No, no. I mean, it's, it's very much the same, right? Like we're both kind of fight fighting the same battle, but yeah. to me with Irene, with you, with me, each time we get, if I have 20 people at a course and I get seven of them into it, yeah, you know, and that now they're now passing that on to their clients, exactly. like that's going to be how it has to build. It, I think that there's a com there's a, a a combination. I think of that grassroots groundswell component, which is really big and huge for us. But there's yeah. also that top down thing, and finding the people who have real influence for whatever reason. Um, we had a really fun thing. Uh, I'm trying to think if I'm allowed to say this. Yeah, I guess I can. Um, there was a picture in the in the Daily Sun UK paper, whatever it's called. I'm blanking on it. Two weeks ago, with Billie Eilish wearing our shoes. Really. That was great. We were super excited. That's we're awesome. still trying to get through to her. If someone like yeah. Billy came out and said, oh my God, you got to wear these in a, other right. than having them on her feet where people right. don't know what they are, you know, that would make a huge difference in the number of people who could have the experience. And then just like you said, they tell two friends, they tell two friends. And, right. you know, and then there's the, like the critical mass point where there's just enough visibility about the idea or the experience or the product where then the doubters have seen it around enough that they go, well, let's give it a shot. Maybe, right. Yeah. And again, because the experience is so consistent and so sells it, that's where ideas like what we're talking about can really take off. Yeah. And if well, we're, we'll see a change before we die. Right. Or at least some, right? I mean, well, hey, we're, we're already seeing some, and I say we with both of us, but yeah. I mean, I would, some people have asked me, they go, what if one of the big shoe companies rips off what you're doing? I went, great. Then we won. Right. I mean, I'm not trying to I'm not trying to beat them up. I'm trying right. to change the world. And that means everybody comes along for the ride in some way. Right. Not everybody, but yeah. more people. No, absolutely. Well, like like you said, someone like Billie Eilish, that's a normal, right? Yeah. So that's not someone who's like a, a crazy runner or right. a crazy physical therapist or, you know, so it, it's it's so, easier sorry, for people to relate to. Wait, were you just implying that either or both of us were crazy? Is that what I heard? No, no, I'm not talking about us. <laughs> those, those other crazy runners and crazy. Yes, those, right. Okay. Just wanted to just wanted to see if that was a little backhanded. <laughs> <laughs> well, is there anything that we left out of this other than telling people how to find you and what you're up to? No, I mean, there's, you know, we could, there's so much to, to do, but I, I think if we can just get people to just open the, their minds to the possibilities and, and just to understand that, you know, these are like, we, you talk about the natural way we're supposed to do things um, with the feet. This is when we watch a baby develop, how we should be. You've stopped saying how you should be because I made a face. So yes. <laughs> let me, I want to ask you a question about that because there's, it, it often comes up that someone will show pictures of baby's feet and say, this is what our feet are supposed to be like. It's like, no, uh, no. look at a baby's head compared to its body. That's yes. not the way we're supposed to be when we get older. So clearly right. there, there are changes, morphological changes as we mature, as we go through yes. puberty, et cetera. So is there anything similar to that on the breathing side that we need to be aware yeah. of? So when, when you, when you don't have, um, like when you look at a baby, their chest is very short. 
right on the, the top and their ribs are kind of lifted up and their bellies are long. And that's because their diaphragm hasn't developed the postural function yet, the core strength function. Oh. And as that develops, it starts to pull the rib cage down. Interesting. And into the shape that it is eventually what, like how we want it to be in normal posture, right? And so sometimes you'll see someone with that short chest and that's because they didn't have a normal development. So the muscle pull as we develop is what helps us shape our bones. And that's included in the foot, right? The, the arch isn't fully formed right. for many years until I think seven, right? Something, yeah, started. plus or minus. Yeah. Yeah. I love the developmental aspect of muscles moving bones. Yeah. There's the movement aspect of muscles moving bones that people don't think about a whole lot. Joe Rogan had one of the, my favorite lines ever about that. He described fighting as the act of using your muscles to throw your bones at people, <laughs> which I thought was brilliant. Yeah, that is funny. So, so I love that developmental component about what your muscles are doing to your bones. That's super interesting. Yeah. Cool. It, well, it, on, it, on that note, and yes, we could go on forever. Yes. But I've got to pee. Um, so, <laughs> just we're not going to do that. So tell people how they can find out more about you and what you're up to. Uh, yeah, you can see me on Instagram at core360belt um, and Aaron McGuire Physical PT. Uh, I'm on there. And the website is core360belt.com. Um, and then also we're, I have a YouTube core360belt channel, and that's going to be, we're going to be kind of starting to roll out a little bit more of the educational videos there coming up. So it's a good one to tune into. Uh, quite. So for everyone else, please do tune in and let me know what you discover when you start experimenting with this. Um, yes. That'll be really, really fun. And um, yeah, and we'll have to find a time to rendezvous somewhere between where we are. This will be a, this will be a yes, blast. I would love to play around with that for sure. We, that's we'll a, make that's that happen. Fun. So for Thank everybody you, else, uh, oh, no, no, please. My pleasure, of course. Okay. So for everyone else, um, thank you for being here and spread the word. Feel free again, go to jointhemovementmovement.com to find the previous episodes, all the social channels. You, there's links to all of that as well. And of course, if you have any questions or feedback or requests for someone who you think would make a great guest on the show, including someone who might think that I have cranial rectal reorientation syndrome, aka <laughs> my head up my butt, um, I'm always up for a conversation, uh, even with people who disagree. There's a guy who I've been having this conversation with on YouTube where I got to just share this. Um, I was showing him all the research backing up everything that I was that I was saying, both pro natural movement and against modern footwear. And he's a footwear designer in Europe. And he said, oh, would be something I'm paraphrasing. Basically, he accused me of being an American and trying to use science to prove a point. Oh, my God. <laughs> I thought it was too brilliant. So I'm, and I've, I've invited him to be on the podcast. He just refuses, which I think is equally hysterical. So exactly. I'm up for the conversation is the best thing I can say. Uh, you can drop me an email, move, M-O-V-E, at jointhemovementmovement.com. But as always, most importantly, just go out and have fun and live life feet first. <laughs>